Well, it's good to see God's chosen frozen out there this morning. <laughs> I said this is one of these mornings you get up and walk outside and it slaps around a little bit, makes sure that you're awake, etc. Good to see you all out on a cold day like today, warm though in the house of the Lord. About 10 years plus ago, I was uh, traveling through uh, Mississippi, headed to Texas following Hurricane Rita on a disaster relief trip. And this is before GPS systems were developed to the extent that they are today. Uh, So let me give it in that context and experience something I had never experienced before and haven't experienced since. We got south of Tuscaloosa, and we began to encounter the area that was being impacted by these hurricanes that had gone through. And I saw trees that looked like someone had just taken them and twisted them and knocked off the tops of them, begin to see road signs, those big steel road signs that had literally just been turned around and twisted. And then we got a little bit farther south. sure what happened to it but anyway uh, I got a little bit farther uh, after that and discovered as I moved into it that literally all the signs on the interstate had been blown down you didn't know where you were the exit signs were blown down all the signs uh, that told you where you were on the road how many miles it was to wherever were blown down And we traveled a fairly good distance, and we didn't have a clue as to where we were. And it was sort of a helpless feeling, because none of us had ever traveled to that part of Mississippi before, pushing towards Louisiana, no road signs to tell us anything, and no exits. You took an exit, you didn't have a clue as to where you were headed on the exit. And so it was sort of a helpless feeling that we were having at that point as to where we were on the road. And you know, a lot of times when we go through life and as we approach a new year, there's this sense often that we're not really sure where we are in what I call the interstate of life. Where are the signs to tell us where God is and what God is up to and where God wants us to go? In our culture, we don't make any connection between Christmas and New Year's. At Christmas time, we talk about the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ and celebrate His coming. And then a week later, when we look at a brand new year, it's almost like Christmas didn't happen. But God gave us a sign for us to follow in the new year of what He's up to, of where we can find Him and direction. And if we would just look for and discern what I call the divine sign that He gives us, That will give us some direction as to where he's taking us and what he wants to do with us. So turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. And as you turn there, I'll let them doctor on me, all right, so that everything works the way it's supposed to. There you go. Luke's Gospel chapter 2, and of course it'll be up there on the screens. Y'all go home from church today and just tell them that the preacher preached with a dead battery, all right? And let them just take that and run with it as to where it goes with that. <laughs> Luke's Gospel, chapter 2, we're going to begin with 11. It's the story of the shepherds. We looked at this last Sunday, but I want to explore it in verse 11. There we go. I feel empowered now. 
As you can tell, it doesn't take much for me to feel like I'm empowered, all right? <laughs> the shepherds were out there on the fields that night doing their mundane, boring job of taking care of their sheep. They weren't looking for God. They weren't expecting the Lord. And they were considered unclean and unfit for the synagogues and the religious establishment of the day because of the kind of dirty work that they did and because their work was 24-7, so rarely could they even get to the synagogue. And so they were really looked down on by the folks. And yet God chose to go to them. It was a tough day and age in which to try to find a sign from God. Organized religion in that day was filled with extremism and hypocrisy. God had not spoken through a prophet in 400 years. They call it now the 400 silent years. And the people needed a sign from God, and yet a whole lot of people had just given up, particularly under the power of the Roman Empire. Their story in so many ways sometimes is like our story. Verses 8 and 9, out there in that field, it says, in the same region, the same region as what? In the same region where Jesus was born, God was at work all around them, but initially they didn't have a clue that He was at work all around them. And folks, when we feel like God is not at work around us, it's not that He's not at work, it's that we just haven't discovered what He's doing yet. In the same region, it says, where Jesus was born, there were those shepherds out on the field. And then it says in verses 8 and 9 that the glory of God surrounded them and the announcement came to them of the good news. The good news that it said would bring a real lasting joy. Now notice chapter 2 and verse 10. The angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy. And notice this phrase, that will be for all the people. That is significant because in that day you lived in a society that was very segregated. You had the rich, you had the poor. You had Jews, you had Gentiles. You had subdivisions within Judaism, Pharisees, Sadducees, etc. You had subdivisions within, among Gentiles. Everybody had their group and most groups looked at the other group with antagonism and were separated from each other. And most religions did not feel that God had anything to do with the other group. So when the angel comes and says, this is going to be the, the Son of God's being born tonight, and this is good news, and it is good news not for one sect, not for one group, not for one ethnicity. This is good news for everybody. That was not only good news, it was new news. It was unique news. Because it was saying God loves everybody equally. God wants to get the message out to everyone equally. And Jesus tonight has been born in Bethlehem for everybody. For the shepherds who are the poor peasants that nobody wants to have much of anything to do with. As well as the rich folks, <clears throat> etc. It is the good news for everybody. And then he moves on and he says there's going to be a sign. That you're going to recognize what God's doing and let's look beginning with verse 11. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes lying in a manger. Now my sermon outline is contained in your bulletin. And I invite you if you would follow along with me. For unto you is born this day, today, 
Luke's gospel is filled with a sense constantly of the immediate. He loves to use the phrase, today this is happening. This day it is happening. What he's trying to say to us is, wake up, get in touch with what God is doing and what he is doing right now. Shepherds, this isn't happening a thousand years from now. This isn't happening next week. Today it's happened. You need to get in touch with what God is doing today. And God's message to us ever since his son was born is that he is at work, but he is at work today. Get in touch with what he is doing today. This day is born to you a what? A Savior. The word Savior is the idea of a deliverer and a preserver. Every time you see Savior, saving, or salvation in the New Testament and even in the Old, it is always the idea of deliverance, that God is stepped in forcefully, intentionally, to deliver us from something and to deliver us to something. And he reinforces the idea of him being the deliverer with what happens in the story. If you notice, you've got the shepherds who are in the darkness who are immediately delivered from the darkness into the light of the glory of God. The Bible says in Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 2, those who sat in darkness have seen a great light. Jesus, as our deliverer, confronted our sin and all the sin of the world. How? On the cross with his blood. And he did it with regal authority. It is a Savior who is who? It is Christ the Lord. He is the Messiah. He has the power to deliver. He has the call from God to deliver. That is his purpose. That is his work. And his blood has the ability and only his blood has the ability to break the power of sin and to deliver us. How, where does he deliver us from? He delivers us from darkness without him to the light of knowing him. He delivers us from the cold of not having a relationship with him to the warmth of being in a relationship with him. He delivers us from confusion to direction. He delivers us, as we just saw, from exclusion to inclusion. In Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 1, it says that when he comes, he's going to be in Galilee of the Gentiles. In other words, if you want to locate the Messiah, go to Galilee. But interesting how the prophet says it's going to be Galilee of the Gentiles. To the Jews, that seemed unthinkable. Why would the Messiah go be with a bunch of Gentiles? That's because he's delivering us from living lives of exclusion into being inclusive. Notice the shepherds were in a state of great fear. And the angel said, I'm going to bring you great joy. They were delivered from fear into joy. He delivers us from ignorance of God, ourselves, life, you name it, to truth. And he delivers us from the power of sin to the power of God. Now, it's something historical going on in this story that we don't want to miss. He says here that a Savior has been born, a deliverer. The term Savior at that time was being utilized for the first time in the history of the Roman Empire by Caesar Augustus, the king at that time, 
calling himself a savior. He was using the exact same Greek word that's used here to refer to himself. And people were beginning to say, Caesar is the savior. And so the angel comes that night and takes that word and says, no, Caesar is not the savior. The king of Rome, the emperor of Rome is not the savior. The savior, the only savior has been born tonight in Bethlehem. But folks, there's always going to be a false savior being paraded in front of people. There's always going to be something claiming that it's going to save us. It's going to deliver us. Power is going to deliver us. Money is going to deliver us. Popularity is going to deliver us. Acceptance of other people is going to deliver us. Achieving what we think we need to achieve in life is going to deliver us. But there's only one deliverer, and his name is Jesus. You see, the promise of addiction, whatever the addiction is, is the promise of deliverance. If you do this and do it over and over again, it's going to deliver you to peace. It's going to deliver you to joy. It's going to deliver you to satisfaction. But the only deliverer is Jesus. Now, here's a question we got to ask. He's the deliverer, and he's come to deliver us. But do we really want deliverance? Do we really want deliverance? I want to propose to you that a lot of times we want denial. We don't want deliverance. What we want Jesus to do with our sin is deny it. Well, that's no sin. That's no big deal. God really could care less. That's denying, not delivering. We want deliverance, but we don't want to really be delivered from our sin. Because you see, so many times we enjoy the sin, and we want to keep it close to us. So what we really want the Lord to do is deny sin in the sense of making sure there are no consequences for our sin, making sure there are no results from our sin. In other words, what I want Jesus to do is not deliver me. I want Jesus to do a good job of running around my life and doing damage control so that I can go over here and engage in the sin and then I can run over here, back over here and say, Jesus, deliver me. And what I want Jesus to do is not to take the sin away from me but take the results and the consequences of sin out of my life so that I can just go back and do it <clears throat> all over again. That's one of the reasons we keep having to ask him to forgive us over and over and over again because I'm not really asking for deliverance. I'm asking for damage control. And Jesus did not come to be the eternal damage controller. He came to be the eternal deliverer. And you see, when Jesus delivers me from sin, he doesn't just step into my life to run around and do damage control. When Jesus delivers me, he comes in to take the desire for the sin away. He comes in to take the sin out of my life. And that's where sometimes deliverance is smooth and sometimes it is tough and it is rough. Because when Jesus steps into my life and he says, I've come to be your savior, I've come to be your deliverer, and I'm going to identify in your life what I need to deliver you from, often my <clears throat> response to him is, Lord, I don't want you to take that away from me. I'm enjoying that. I like doing that. 
I like having that in my life, so don't take that away from me. And he says, but if I'm going to deliver you, I have to take it away from you. I have to identify to you and to whoever else i got to identify to what it is in your life that's eating away at you, it's destroying you, because you don't need me to damage control in your life. You need deliverance, because if I have to constantly do damage control in your life, sooner or later it's going to eat your lunch and take you out. So the only way I can get you free is to deliver you. And my purpose to come into your life is not just to step in over and over and over again and clean the mess up. It's to deliver you from what's causing the mess in the first place. When my son was a little boy, we lived in a cul-de-sac in a very densely populated section of Virginia Beach. And back in those days, I don't know if kids got these nowadays or not, back in those days they had what they called big wheels. Do they still have big wheels? It was like a little bicycle with a huge wheel out in the front. And it was particularly designed for small kids or preschoolers. And Jonathan was a preschooler at the time, and he had a big wheel. And I was out in the front yard one day, and we were in this, like I said, we lived in this cul-de-sac, and it had a lot of traffic going and coming in it because there was, the population was so dense. Most of the houses were literally not more than 5 to 10 feet from each other. And I looked over there, and I saw my son on his big wheel drive right out into that cul-de-sac. And I knew if I didn't stop him, it wouldn't be long before he was going to go out into the street. So I had to act to deliver him. Now, if you'd been standing in the adjacent street, what you would have seen is that my act of deliverance was not pleasant in relationship to my son. And he did not receive it as a pleasant experience. (laughs) He didn't even receive it as a loving experience. I walked, ran over to him, I grabbed a hold of him, I grabbed a hold of that big wheel, I drug him back into that yard as fast as I could, I took the big wheel away from him, and I began to let into him about how dangerous that was, how he could get hit by a vehicle, uh, what it damage it could, it could kill him. Uh, I just reamed him out about him and that big wheel, and I told him I better never see that big wheel out in that cul-de-sac again. And he sat there, you know, and he was sort of scared half to death receiving what I was saying to him. And what I'm saying to you this morning is often that's what God has to do in our lives. We get out there and God knows if he doesn't stop us, if he doesn't intervene, and if he doesn't intervene forcefully, we're going to get run over in life. And God grabs a hold of us and pulls us back. And that's an act of deliverance. He begins to discipline us. And that's an act of deliverance. And lo and behold, sometimes he takes our big wheel away from us. And we pout about that. And we get mad about that. Because God took something away from me. And God is trying to say, I took it away from you. Because if you stayed on it and kept using it, it's going to do you in. You don't know how to handle it. That's an act of deliverance. But he delivers us to something, not just from something. He delivers us to himself. In Luke's Gospel, chapter 8, verses 26 through 39, there's a fascinating story of Jesus going to a town. And there was a man in that town who was filled with demons under the control and the power of Satan. 
And Jesus intentionally walks up to this guy. And the guy under demonic influence begins to cry out, Jesus, what are you doing? The Bible says this guy was a mess. He would run around naked. He would just, they they would try to control him. And they'd even put all kinds of shackles on him and chains. And he'd bust all of them because of the power of evil that was inside of him. Jesus cast all the demons out of the man. And in verse 35, it describes the guy this way when Jesus finished working with him. Number one, it says he was clothed. Jesus will deliver you to dignity. He was clothed. Jesus will restore your dignity. Next, it says he was in his right mind. Jesus will restore your mind. But the final description he gives of this man, it says he was sitting at the feet of Jesus. This guy who had run around screaming and hollering and naked and cutting himself and chains on him that he'd broken loose is sitting there. He's got clothes on. He's thinking clearly. But he's at Jesus' feet. You see, what Jesus did is he took him from being in the presence and power and at the feet of evil to his presence. And when Jesus delivers you, he delivers you to sit at his feet. There is a significance here in the idea of him sitting. It meant he was at peace. And if you stay in his presence long enough, he will deliver you into his peace. Jesus says to him in verse 39, I want you to do something. I want you to go out and I want you to tell everybody about what I have done for you. I want you to go out and I want you to declare to everybody what I have done for you. Can you imagine the difference in that man in terms of the town where he lived? This was a guy that ran around prior to Jesus getting involved in his life who screamed and screeched and carried on about what the devil was doing in his life. Everything coming out of his mouth was under demonic control or demonic influence. And now this same guy goes through town and he's not talking about Satan anymore. He's not spewing out all this unintelligible junk that Satan had filled his heart and his mind with. He's saying, Jesus touched me and Jesus healed me and Jesus delivered me. And Jesus loves me. And Jesus has made a difference in my life. And Jesus has given me joy. And Jesus has given me peace. And Jesus has healed me. And Jesus has changed my life. And folks, when Jesus delivers us, we get our dignity. We get in our right mind. We sit at his feet. And then we can't stop talking about it. And what he has done and is doing in our life. Notice verse 12, Luke 2. 
The angel says, I want you to go to Bethlehem. And this is going to be the sign when you get to Bethlehem. You're going to go to a stable. And when you get to the stable, there's going to be a manger, a feeding trough. And when you look in that feeding trough, you are going to see a baby. And that's the sign. A baby in a manger. The manger would have spoken of absolute, total poverty for a baby to have to be put in a manger. And you're going to see a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes. There is nothing special or holy about the swaddling clothes. That's what every baby back in those days was wrapped up in. Ordinary. This is going to be the sign. You're going to see a baby in absolute poverty, and you're going to see a baby sitting there wrapped in some mundane clothes. What was God trying to say? I have taken the divinely significant, and I have disguised it in the seemingly insignificant. I want to say that again. I have taken the significant and I have disguised it in the insignificant. I've taken the significant and I have disguised it in the insignificant. Folks, we miss a lot of what God is doing because God loves to disguise His significant work in what we consider to be insignificant. You see, this world teaches us from day one that if it's got money, it's important. And God brought His Son into the world in poverty. This world teaches us that if you've got a lot of fame and popularity then you are significant. And nobody knew Jesus was being born that night except for the shepherds. This world teaches us that if you're accepted by the crowd, then you've got value. And Jesus ended up being rejected by just about everybody. This world teaches us that if you dress the right way, whatever the right way happens to be and whatever cultural expression you're in, then you are somebody. If you got the right tags on, if you bought it from the right place, if it's the right look. It's been interesting with us living in Tidewater and moving here because I've, I've noticed that what you dress like out in Hampton Roads to be in is not what you dress like in southwest Virginia to be in. And what you dress like here is not how you dress there. This part of the state, you make a mint selling jeans. You go to poverty selling jeans over in Hampton Roads. Just two different things. But you see, what we do is every culture creates its own way of dress to say this is part of what it means. And Jesus comes in with just wearing something boring and plain, etc. If we try to find the Lord and what this world tells us is significant, we're going to miss him. 
And if we look for God to always show up and work in our lives in some big, impressive, splashy way, we are going to miss God. And if we look for the people that are going to make us feel important as the ones we want to minister to so they will make us feel important, we're going to miss God and who he's got for us. And God forbid we never do this, but if we as a church decide that we only want certain demographics coming in the the room and sitting in the pew on Sunday because that will make us successful as a church, we're going to probably miss God. Because he doesn't work that way. So many people miss Jesus because God took the significant and he clothed it in what was insignificant. So we got to ask the Lord, God, would you help me to discern and to see what you're doing because it's so different than the way I'm used to operating. When you go on a trip, The best sign you see is the sign that says, welcome, which tells you you've reached your destination. Welcome. You notice every town, if you're in Rocky Mount, you're going to see signs that say what? Welcome to Rocky Mount. And see, what God was saying when he told the shepherds the sign's going to be the baby in the manger, he's saying, welcome to my presence. Welcome to my work. And on the cross, he was saying, welcome to forgiveness, welcome to healing, welcome to restoration. In the resurrection, the sign of the empty tomb, he was saying, welcome to power that is beyond the power of death, the power of sin, the power of shame, the power of everything that every human being in their sin could throw at him and Satan could throw at him. Welcome to power That is beyond all of that. And someday, the Bible says that he will split the eastern sky in his second coming. And on that day, with thousands of angels and with the trumpet sound of God ringing forth, he is going to say, welcome home for eternity. And that is the day, based on those other days that we look for and we live for. Let's pray. Father, help us to see your sign. The signs, Lord, that you give us of your presence. Signs, Lord, that at times will seem so insignificant, we will miss them without your help. But God, help us to see the sign. The sign that you are our Savior, you are our Deliverer. The sign, God, that what seems sometimes small and insignificant and unimportant to us and weak and what we want to just sort of take and throw under the bus is your work, God. Lord, sometimes the people around us that we tend to want to just write off, God, you placed them in our lives for a specific reason. Even the ones, Lord, that may get on our nerves and we don't understand. God, help us to see your sign. And thank you, Jesus, for the sign that we live looking forward to of your second coming. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, if you're here today and you need to give your life to Jesus Christ,
And you need to choose to follow Him. But in just a moment as we sing, I want to invite you to walk the aisle of this church and to give your life to the Lord. Choose to follow Him today. If the Lord's been working in your life and laying on your heart and your mind any other decision you need to make or rededicating your life to the Lord or becoming part of this church family or surrendering to a call into ministry, then I want to invite you to surrender to that call. To respond to His gentle pulling at your life. To say, this is a step of obedience that I want you to take. In these moments now of invitation and response, let us let Him have His way in our lives. Let's stand together. Sing if you will and come if you will.